So in the banking world, counterfeit identification is crucial. If you cannot identify counterfeit bills, then your bank will become worthless. You have to, without a doubt, be able to identify the counterfeits. So you would think that those who work at a bank would spend countless hours looking at counterfeits, right? They'd have all the different counterfeits in front of them, and they would study these counterfeits so that they could know every little last bit of a counterfeit. But you'd be wrong. That is not the best way to identify a counterfeit. There are just too many, and they continue to come out. There's constant counterfeits being produced. The only way to really be able to identify the counterfeit is not to focus on the counterfeits, but to focus on the real thing. When you focus on the real thing, when you know the real thing, It's easy to spot the fake. If you want to know how to identify counterfeit dollar bills, stop studying counterfeits. Start studying the real thing. Now, the most valuable thing on earth is not actually money. The most valuable thing on earth is the offer to have a right relationship with God. To be made right with God. So it would make sense then that there would be people who would try to counterfeit the offer. There would be people that would try to convince you that the real thing isn't real, but that this fake thing is real. Because anytime there is something of value, there will be counterfeits. So the best way we can identify the counterfeit offers is to study the real thing. And the more we study the real thing, the more we will be able to identify the counterfeit. The more we'll be able to identify the people that are trying to convince you that the counterfeit is the real thing. And that is what we will talk about today. As we continue our study, uh, Christ is Life, a study through 1 John. Now last week, uh, we talked a little bit about this introduction of the world operating system. So John has been outlined, he's been, or he's been laying out this argument, and he's been contrasting the light and the dark, that God is light and there is no darkness in him. And anyone that says he has fellowship with God, who is walking with God, but has darkness, is a liar. And then he lays out that anyone who says he loves, or anyone who says he is walking in the light, but hate his hates his brother, is still in the darkness. So we get this idea of love being a part of the light. And then he starts getting into the the world, the world's operating system, which is selfishness. Me being the center of the world, that's the world's operating system. Everybody believes that they are the they are the center of the world. And then there are characteristics that play out through that world's operating system. A self-earned righteousness is part of the characteristics. Trying to earn for yourself what God has already promised. That's the desire of the flesh. When I was in elementary school, 
I was, I was about third grade, and I was struggling with some issues in my life. And uh, I sat down, I was, I was at home, and I sat down in the corner of a room one day, and I was just being introspective and contemplative. And, and my mom came up, and she started talking to me, and she realized that I was really struggling with some issues. So she, like, uh, uh, arranged for me to go see a school counselor. So I went to the school counselor, and the school counselor, after listening to me talk for a couple hours, looked at me and said, Aaron, I think the problem is, is that you don't really think you're valuable. Because all of your siblings are excelling in school, and you're getting C's. So what I want you to do is, I think that your solution here is work harder at school, and then you'll start to feel better about yourself. Well, two things happened to me right in that instance. One is, you're a school counselor. I see right through your, your little shield here, like, do better at school so I look better. Earned. I knew that was the case, right? But I also saw something else. And something else that was taught to me right then was my value doesn't come from who I am. She didn't say, Aaron, you are a child of God, therefore you are valuable. And you don't have to think wor- that you're worthless. I thought, right, or she said, what you produce is what makes you valuable. Well, I knew I wasn't good at school and I was never going to be able to compete with my siblings at school. So I invested in sports. And I thought if I could just be good enough at sports, I would finally have value. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's masterpiece. We are his original artwork. We have value not because of what we do, but because who we are. Because who we are related to. God. God created us, and he created us in his image. Therefore, we have value. But we see this all the time in the secular world, right? I will earn my value. by I am as valuable as what I produce. That is part of the world's operating system. So, so we introduce this idea of the, the desires of the flesh, earning what God has promised through our own power. We're going to earn it. And in the secular world, I think it's value. You see people searching for it all over the place. They will have value by what they produce. But we also see the flip side of that. Let's say you've come to the conclusion that you can't produce. You have siblings that are incredibly intelligent, and you'll never be as intelligent as they are, but you're also not even close to being athletic. And you just don't feel valuable at all. What do you eventually do? You say, fine, I'm not valuable. I'm just going to go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. And you turn towards drugs and other ways to to numb the pain that you feel because you're not valuable enough. That's the desires of the flesh. But then he goes on to say the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes are coveting. It's covetousness. It's seeing what other people have and saying, I wish I had that. And maybe it is their value. Maybe you see them and they're beautiful and you think, man, if only I was as beautiful as blank. If only I was as smart as Elon Musk. If only I had the family of. If only my children behaved like so and so. So that's the desires of the eyes. It's the covetousness. But it's still being self-focused, isn't it? Both of these are being self-focused. I am the center of the world. And then he says in the pride of life. And the pride of life is when you, when you feel like you have achieved. Then, you, then pride enters in and you think you are better. Not because of what God has done, but because of what you have done. So he's laying this out. And this week he will directly take on those who are affirming this system. The system that says you don't need Christ. 
there were people that were preaching this system. John is going to take it on. So open with me, if you will, to 1 John 2. We'll pick up in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that, they might, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right, so he he starts this off with this term, children, and it's this affectionate term. We kind of looked at this term a little bit last week of this being brought forth. And it is a term that applies to all Christians. These this little children, we've been brought forth, we've been born again. So children, it is the last hour. In the New Testament, the period that we are living in is often called the last days or the last hour. This is a phrase that basically means from the ascension of Christ until his return. That's the last hour. Those are the last days. So if you say, or if you hear anyone say, I think we might be living in the last days, you can say, you're right. We are living in the last days. The last days have occurred since Jesus' ascension, and it will continue to occur until he returns again. So we're at 2,000 years of the last days. We're at 2,000 years of the last hour. But that's the phrase that's been used to describe this era. So we are living in the last days. And then he tells us how we know we're living in the last days. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So first he he recognizes that there is going to be an Antichrist. They know that there is going to be an Antichrist. An Antichrist will come. But he doesn't just say that there is an Antichrist that has come. So now many Antichrists have come. So we see that there is a future Antichrist, but that there are Antichrists here and now. In these last days, in the last 2,000 years, there have been Antichrists. The Antichrist is just a phrase that is basically two Greek terms that means against or replacing and Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. So Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Savior. So these are people who are anti-Jesus. Now the Antichrist that is coming is Satan himself. Can you think of anything that is more against Jesus? It is Satan. 
And Satan's job is is to try to convince you that you don't need Jesus. And one of the best ways that he can do that is by counterfeiting Jesus. There's a reason why there are so many religions and religiosity in this world. They're counterfeits. Satan wants to convince you, either one, that you haven't sinned against the holy God, that you haven't rebelled against the holy God, that you haven't shaken your fist and said, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my own way, and therefore have been separated from him. That's one way that Satan wants to try to counterfeit, that there is no such thing as sin. But another way that he wants to try to counterfeit, because a lot of people know, deep down, you you know that you have sinned. You know that you have failed in some way. You know that you have had an immoral act at some point. You've cheated on a test. You've stole something. Maybe you've done worse. But you know that you have messed up somehow. And so the other strategy Satan has, the other counterfeit that he brings in is religiosity. That you can earn your salvation. That you can earn your righteousness. You don't need Jesus. You can earn it back yourself. That is a counterfeit. So so Satan himself is a counterfeit. He's trying to replace Jesus with all kinds of different things. With trying to convince you that you don't need him, either because you never have sinned or because you can do it yourself. So then there are little antichrists. Now, the antichrist is the one that is to come. So Satan is going to come. But there are also antichrists, which is plural. There are several little people that are against Christ. They are against Christ, and they replicate his strategy. They are against Christ, and they are trying to convince you, either one, you don't need Jesus because you've never sinned. You do you. It's all good. There's no such thing as morality. It's all subjective. You can justify any action. But then they'll also try to convince you of another strategy. And that is, you don't need Jesus because you can earn it yourself. You can be good enough. So you recognize that you've messed up. You recognize that there's a break in your relationship with God. Great, I'm so glad for you that you recognize that. But let me tell you about a way that you can become good with Him again. That you can have a perfect relationship with God. And that's by trying harder. If you just have the right doctrine, have the right behavior, if you're just affirming enough, And the list goes on and on and on about ways that you might become good enough. But the truth is, you have rebelled against God in a way that only God can pay the price. That's why John says he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. The only way you can have a right relationship with God is through Christ. That's it. You can't earn your way back. You can't be good enough. It has to be through Christ. So these counterfeits are how we know that it is the last hour. 
and it has been for 2,000 years. John goes on to explain the counterfeits a little bit more. In verse 9, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, are not of us. So this here most likely refers, the us here most likely refers to the apostles. So these counterfeits, these antichrists, these ones who are against Christ, and their strategy to go against Christ is to try to counterfeit and replace Christ with something lesser than Christ. They were most likely running with the apostles at some point. They were with the apostles at some point. But then they went out from the apostles. So these false teachers were with the apostles, and now they're trying to acclaim the authority of the apostles. Because they hung out with the apostles once, they now think they have the authority of the apostles, and they are now trying to convince the church to leave the apostles' teaching for their own teaching. To leave the teaching of the church for this new, cool teaching. So it's important that we know it wasn't like these were people who were on the periphery. It wasn't people who just came to see what this Christianity thing was all about. These were not people who were immature in the faith and just needed a little bit more grounding. They were immature in the faith and just needed a little bit more teaching to fully understand it. These were people who claimed to be true teachers. They claimed to have maturity. They were the real spiritually mature people. They knew a lot of theology. They probably knew a lot of scripture. And yet, we're actually against Christ. And we're trying to replace Christ with a counterfeit. And so they were trying to claim some type of authority like the apostles had. Even though they did not have that authority, because even though they were with the apostles, they were not apostles. And one of the evidences that John gives that they were not of the apostles is that they left and started preaching another gospel. They left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The fact that they left shows that they were not of the apostles. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So they go out, and they begin to teach a different gospel. Now, before we start calling everyone who leaves Calvary antichrists, we should probably note that in Flagstaff, I think there are a lot of great churches. And there are, are several different reasons to leave a church. There are people who have left this church, and I think they've had good reasons to leave this church. And it's okay for them to leave this church. In fact, I'm still friends with some of the people that have left this church. And I hope to be an encouragement to them as they settle down at a new church. So not all who leave are antichrists. John, in a couple verses, will clarify who is the antichrist. Who, who are the antichrists? What is a defining characteristic of someone that is antichrist? That way we can know who to go around calling antichrist, right? That might not be the best strategy. But before he does this, he gives them some encouragement to remain. Or uh, picking up in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and 
and you all have knowledge. Now, there is a, 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 some of your translations will say you have all knowledge or you all have knowledge. There is a two-word difference here. I think the evidence, both the external and internal evidence, uh, leans more towards you have all, sorry, you all have knowledge, not you have all knowledge. He wasn't saying that everybody has all knowledge or every Christian has all the knowledge. We still need to learn, right? In fact, he's writing to teach them. So he's definitely giving them some instruction. So he's not saying that they, all, that they have all knowledge. He's saying that they all have some type of knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. All right, so here we go. Uh, he, he is writing them and he's telling them that they have knowledge here. But before he gets into that, he lets them know that they have an anointing. This anointing simply means that they have the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus promised when he died and rose again and he ascended that after he ascended, the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. So any believer who has put their faith and trust in Christ has the Holy Spirit come and indwell in you. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict and to teach you. The Holy Spirit interacts with your heart to help guide you in the truth. We are absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now, some Christians build walls against the Holy Spirit. Some Christians don't want to listen to the Holy Spirit. And that affects the, their walk with God, and it affects their ability to receive truth. But when we are uh, submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit, when we are letting our spirit interact with the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit convicts and teaches and guides us. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for our maturing in the faith. In Ephesians, Paul writes, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the way he phrases that is, when you think about being drunk with wine, there are levels that you can be drunk with, right? Now, some of you don't understand this, and hopefully will never understand this, but, but there are some people that would say, oh, I've got my buzz on. So, so, you know, they're being affected a little bit by the wine. And then there are some people that might say, like, oh, I was totally for schnookered last night. I could barely even walk. They were greatly affected by wine. So, so we see, like, just one drink of wine isn't going to have the same effect. But as you take more and more drinks, you'll be more and more controlled by wine. And I think he's contrasting that with being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not like a second feeling, but it is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying in, in Ephesians, be controlled by the Spirit. And how do we control, let the Spirit control us? Well, it's by submission. And there are levels of, of control that we allow the Spirit to give us. So as we submit more and more to the Spirit, the Spirit controls us more and more. I've never heard anyone say, I got a good buzz on the Holy Spirit. I was totally for snickered on the Holy Spirit last night. But maybe we should let that become a part of our vocabulary, right? Anyways, that's what he's getting at, is that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit came and indwelled in you and began to convict and change you and teach you. So it is the Holy Spirit that allows us to have knowledge. Now what's interesting is that then he phrases this last part, or this Verse 21 with three what's called hati clauses. Hati uh, is translated as that. And it, there are three that clauses or clauses that provide a uh, marker of cause. 
So I write to you that, or a marker of clause, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So that's two clauses right there. That because no lie is of the truth. So these false teachers, these counterfeit teachers, were trying to slide in a counterfeit. And one of the ways that they were doing that is that they were trying to convince these, the, the audience that they didn't actually know the truth. You guys don't know the truth. You're not the super special religious people like we are. If you want to be super special and know the deeper truths of Christianity, if you want to know the deeper truths of Christ, you've got to come partner with me. And so they were trying to sell a bill of goods. They were trying to sell a counterfeit by, number one, undermining the knowledge that John's audience had. So John is writing to give them encouragement. Hey, look. I write, not because you do not know the truth. These people are trying to convince you that you don't know the truth, but I'm writing you not, not for that reason, but because you do know the truth. You know it. Don't let these people forsnicker you. You know it. Don't let these people try to convince you that you aren't good enough. Don't let these people try to convince you that you don't know the truth. You know the truth. And not only that, but... No lie is of the truth. So these people are trying to convince you of a lie. Don't believe it. You know the truth, and no lie is of the truth. So these lies that they are telling you isn't even rooted in the truth. Now what's interesting here is all of these words know right here, You uh, back in verse 20, you all have knowledge. You do not know the truth, but you do know it. All of these are the, the Greek term oida. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about uh, gnosko and oida, how gnosko is an intimate knowledge of. In fact, oftentimes, gnosko was a euphemism for sex. And he came and knew her. Well, that's an intimacy, right? Nowhere do we see oida used as a euphemism for sex because oida is not an intimate knowledge of. And throughout John's letter, we'll see, he uses both these terms. And every term that he uses, or every time he uses gnosko, it's an intimate knowledge of, or it's a relational knowledge of. Whereas oida is more of this fact-based. So these people are trying to attack the facts. And he's saying, no, 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 you guys know the facts. Oida is fact-based, you know the facts, guys. Don't let these people try to convince you that the, that the facts aren't real. In fact, if we back all the way up to the beginning, he, he makes this a fact-based letter that he heard, he saw, he scrutinized, he handled, he touched with the intention to examine that Christ came in the flesh. Our faith is fact-based. And he is reminding his audience that Jesus is real. The Antichrist are trying to make claims about Jesus that are just not true. They're not fact-based. And John is saying, you know the facts. Don't get lost in the hype. So because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, the Holy Spirit is interacting with them, the Holy Spirit is leading them, they can know and perceive the truth. Next, John will contrast that with the false teachers. And here is how we identify 
the Antichrists. So those are, there are some who are Antichrists. How do we know? Not everybody that leaves Calvary Bible Church is an Antichrist. So how do we know who is an Antichrist? Well, we pick up in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is it. That's how we identify the Antichrist. Those who deny Jesus as the Christ. Now remember, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It is a title. We could call it the Messiah. So there were people trying to convince John's audience that Jesus was not the Messiah. And John just straight up up calls them out. He lets them know, look, if these people are denying Jesus as the Messiah, they are in fact anti-Christ. They are anti-Messiah. They are anti-Jesus. The basic fact is that Jesus is the Christ. The antichrists deny this by either trying to convince us that we don't need Christ because our sin is not deserving of death or because we don't need Christ because we can earn our way back. So the antichrist has to do with denying the very person of Christ. Christianity is based on the very idea that Jesus is God come in the flesh to pay the price for our sins. That's what it's based on. To deny Christ is to no longer be a Christian. Now, we can get a lot of doctrine wrong. I've gotten a lot of doctrine wrong through my life. I will probably be convinced at some point that I've messed other things up. But this is one that we absolutely need to be sure we get correct. The very gospel depends upon getting Jesus as the Christ correct. If we get this wrong, everything else will be wrong. The false teachers, the Antichrist, try to deny Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we live in an age when it's easy to deny the death and resurrection of Christ. And I say that because we are far removed from it, right? We're 2,000 years. We live in a totally different country. We're really far removed from the evidence of the resurrection. But I'd still say there is evidence we can rely on to point us towards Christ, towards Jesus as the Christ. So I'll just cover a couple pieces. One is in the Old Testament, there are over 70 prophecies about who the Messiah would be. Jesus fulfills them all perfectly. Now, a mathematician named Peter Stoner wanted to find the probability that Jesus could fulfill just eight. He's not even talking about all of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled perfectly, just eight of them. I mean, he really narrowed that down, right? And he concluded that in order for Jesus to perfectly fulfill just eight would be a one in ten to the 17th power. I mean, that's an unfathomable number for us. In order for us to get a a better grasp of that, he says that it would be like covering the entire state of Texas. Think about how big the state of Texas is. Covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. So we're talking over my knees deep, full of silver dollars in the entire state of Texas. And then having someone randomly mark eight of those silver dollars 
placing them just randomly throughout the state of Texas, and then having you fly over Texas with a helicopter and randomly picking up eight of those silver dollars. The probability of you picking up all eight that were marked is the same probability that it took for Jesus to perfectly, perfectly fulfill eight of those prophecies. Think about the overwhelming possibility that that would happen. I mean, it just seems impossible, doesn't it? You and I both know, if I just randomly went to Texas, even if it wasn't two feet deep, even if it was just one layer deep of me picking up perfectly eight of those, it's almost impossible. Think about the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he perfectly fulfilled eight of those prophecies, yet he did over 70 of them. The probability that Jesus would do that is so immense. It's crazy to think about. We can't actually wrap our minds around it. But that's not all the evidence. There's even more. Like I said, in our day and age, it's actually, I think, fairly easy for us to deny that Jesus was the Christ, that he died and rose again. It's easy for us to deny the resurrection. Some people even believe that he was a historical figure. There are a lot of secular historians that believe Jesus was a historical figure. In fact, the evidence of him being a historical figure is so overwhelming that there is a movement among secular historians to go against those who try to deny that Jesus even existed. That's how overwhelming the evidence is that he existed. Secular historians are like, no, we look like idiots when we try to deny that Jesus even existed. But we're so far removed, it's easy to say, but the resurrection, that's impossible. The resurrection's impossible. But if we consider the growth of the early church, if ever there was a time and a place to debunk Christianity, it would have been Jerusalem at the time of the resurrection. All you would have to do is produce a body. That's it. Hey guys, Jesus rose from the dead. No, he didn't. Here is his body. Oh, stand corrected. Sorry. Movement's dead. But we see Christianity growing at an incredible rate in Jerusalem in the first century. And not only do we see it growing despite how easily it would have been to produce the evidence that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we also see it growing in the face of death. First generation Christians were getting killed. Now, we see a lot of people with faith today that die for things that they believe in. I think you and I, we might say, yes, I would die for Christianity. That's something that I believe is true. And it is very true. People will die for things that they believe is true. But no one is willing to die for what they know is a lie. No one is willing to die for what they know is a lie. And in Jerusalem, during the time of the resurrection, there were at least over 500 witnesses to Christ. Or at least they claimed to be witnesses to Christ. Who were looking, they were facing death. How easy would it have been for them to say, whoa, I just made that thing up. We all just made this thing up because we thought it would be cool. Ha ha, Pharisees, joke's on you. 
Man, if you and I were in that position, I guarantee you, you'd be like, no, this was a lie. We just made it up. No one's willing to die for what they know is a lie. And not just die, but be brutally tortured for what they know is a lie. That's a huge amount of evidence that the resurrection is real, that Jesus is the Christ. So much overwhelming evidence, in fact, that even Bart Ehrman, who is like the world's foremost secular uh, New Testament historian, talks about how the apostles, the, the over 500 witnesses, must have believed that it was real. Now, he doesn't believe in Christ, and, and the reason why he says, he's like, I'm a historian, so I have to believe the most plausible thing. The resurrection or miracles, by definition, are the least probable. Therefore, I cannot believe in a resurrection. But the evidence is so overwhelming that, I, that he has to believe that the apostles and the over 500 witnesses saw a resurrected Christ. So how does he explain that? He says, well, they must have all hallucinated at the same time. Now, that sounds like a pretty ridiculous claim to me. In all honesty, I think a resurrected Christ, because God loves the world, is a much more plausible claim. So the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, I think, is actually overwhelming. So we can have faith in Christ. We can believe in Christ. But the Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ. And then Paul or John goes on to say, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. So he goes on to make the correlation between Jesus and the Father but the two are one together. This is one of our great uh, proof texts for the Trinity, that there is one Godhead represented in three different persons, that Jesus and the Father are the same. And then he goes on, picking up in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So now that we have properly identified the Antichrist and their claim, John centers the rest of this chapter around the word meno. Meno is translated as continue, remain, or abide. It means to remain or to continue in an activity or to continue in a state. So the command here is to let what they heard from the beginning, the gospel, abide or remain or to continue in a state. So they are to remind themselves of the gospel. The gospel that we have all rebelled against God. That because of this rebellion, we have been separated from God and we are all deserving death. But because God loves us with such a great love, he came in the form of man to pay the price for our sin. That we may be restored in our relationship with him. And upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, God transfers you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive together with Christ. And then he calls you righteous, holy, just, pure, washed. Your sins are forgiven. All that rebellion that you had committed against God has now been forgiven. That is the gospel. 
that is what they had heard from the beginning. And as they continue to meno in it, as they continue to abide in it, they continue to meno or abide in Christ. And this, as they continue to do this, they, have, they experience a state of growing in God's grace. They continue to mature as believers. And as they continue to mature as believers, they experience a greater capacity of life. Eternal life isn't just life forever. So often as Christians, we boil eternal life down to this like, one day when I die, I'll experience eternal life. But eternal life is a higher quality of life, a life that is filled with joy, even in the worst of circumstances. So what John is commanding his audience and what we need to do is remind ourselves of the gospel. Let the gospel continue to have its effect on us. And as we let the gospel continue to have its effect on us, we can have joy in all circumstances. Picking up in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and no lie, just as has taught, just as it has taught you, abide in him. All right, so the ancient Greek religions were kind of mystic. They were an emotional-based experience, and that was one of the promises of the Antichrist. So they took some of the Christianity and a little of the mystical religion of the day and then promised if, these, if the Christians would follow them, they would teach them how to have a super special religion and they could experience this emotional-based religion that they had. And John is saying, you don't need that super special mystical stuff. And you don't need that teacher. So John is not saying that they don't need to be taught at all. In fact, John is writing this letter to teach them. What John is saying is we don't need that super special mystical teaching because we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. The Holy Spirit continuing the Holy Spirit remaining in us. The Holy Spirit will direct us. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we can see the truth. And as it is presented to us, we see it. We hear teaching and we understand that it makes sense. Sometimes we hear teaching and we see that it doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives us this special kind of radar that kind of detects bad teaching. But those who don't have the Holy Spirit can look at the same evidence and still not believe the truth. So we can look at the evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead and we can say, yes, that makes sense. Of course I believe. Bart Ehrman would look at the exact same evidence and say, well, there's got to be a better explanation than the resurrection. And he's going to try to try to manipulate anything he can into that explanation. But we have the Holy Spirit interacting with our spirit, interacting with us guiding us and teaching us. And as we read the word, the Holy Spirit draws out principles for us to apply. He goes on, picking up in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So here we go again with Menno. At first, it was to let the gospel menno, to remain, to continue. 
then it was a reminder that the Holy Spirit is remaining in you. Now it's a command to remain to know in Christ. Once again, the idea is to remain, to continue in. To see the light, to be exposed by God, and to stay in the light, to have fellowship, to walk with. Instead of seeing the light, feeling exposed, and shrinking back. Now what's amazing It is Christ who does the work for us as we remain in the light. As we hold fast to his word, he changes our heart. He heals us from our sin. I don't change my heart. I don't heal myself from sin. My job isn't to do those things. My job isn't even to grow myself into more maturity. My job is to remain, to remind myself of biblical truths. To look over and over again at the Bible and say, this is what God says. This is his truth. And as I do that, he heals me. He matures me. He grows me. And John gives us the result. When he returns, we will have confidence. Notice that he will return. It's not a matter of if. It's a guarantee. He will return. We don't know when, but we know it will happen. And when it happens, we'll have confidence. Because we will see his light. And we've been abiding in his light. And we'll feel comfortable in his light. So those who remain will not shrink back. Those who do not remain, who who feel exposed by his light, that that see the ugliness of their sin, that finally recognize their depravity, and they don't like that feeling, and they shrink back, it's not that they've lost their salvation. It's that when he comes again, They will shrink back from him. They will feel shame at his coming because they will feel exposed for the first time. He goes on in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So as we abide in him, he transforms us. And as a result, We have changed behavior. One of the problems with the false teachers, the antichrist, the counterfeits, is their theology does not actually change behavior. It justifies behavior, but it it doesn't actually change you in the long run. It It may even modify your behavior, but real behavior change comes from a heart change. And the Antichrist, the counterfeits, can never actually change your heart. Only Christ can change your heart. And as a result of having a changed heart, your behavior begins to change. As you submit and are filled by the Spirit, not just a light buzz on the Spirit, but you go full in, letting the Spirit control you entirely, you begin to see your behavior change. The changes are not always overnight, but gradually you begin to see them change. God is still convicting me of sins I didn't even realize I had when I first believed. I don't know how many of you have experienced that. Like, you come to know Christ, Christ begins to change you, and you're like, wow, I have a lot of despicable sins going on. 
And then three, four years go along, and you're like, I don't have those despicable sins going on anymore. And then you're convicted of a whole new wave, and you're like, oh, man, I didn't even realize this was an issue in my life. So often, the change doesn't come overnight, but it comes gradually as God continues to mature you in the faith. As I submit, he changes, he convicts. So this is one way to know that you are saved. Is your behavior changing? Not are you perfect, but are you moving more and more towards the goal of becoming more and more like Christ? There are a lot of counterfeits in this world. The most valuable thing in this world is the gospel. So it stands to reason that there are counterfeits everywhere. And they range from all kinds of different counterfeits that say you don't need Christ because you never sinned to begin with, all the way over to the other side of the counterfeit that says you don't need Christ because you're good enough. You can earn it back. These are all counterfeits. The best way to identify a counterfeit is to be so immersed in the real thing to abide in Christ, to let the Holy Spirit convict, to submit your life more and more to the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, you recognize the truth of the gospel, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have a God that loves you with such a fierce love, he became man and died on a cross to pay the price for your sins. And upon putting your faith and trust in Christ, he makes you holy, he makes you righteous. And there's nothing you can do to make you more holy or more righteous. Just abide in him. That's your job. Remain in him. He'll take care of the rest. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you love us with such a fierce love that you came and you paid the price. You love us with such an amazing love that although we were in rebellion against you, on our behalf, and we thank you so much that upon putting our faith and trust in you, you actually change us. And as we submit to you, you continue to change us. That you continue to mold us and shape us more into the person that you created us to be. And we pray that as a congregation, we would see that and we would hold tight to it. In your holy name we pray.